So reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Familiar passage. It's an exciting time of the year, isn't it? We had Easter, then Ascension, 40 days after Easter, and then Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. And so let's read what happens on Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's especially um, uh, encouraging for me to be able to speak to you about this ministry that I lead, Salaam 2.0, a ministry of Resonate Global Mission. It's probably a good chance for me to also thank you for your support for Resonate. Uh, we really appreciate it. So just a little bit of background, because maybe you're not familiar with Salaam 2.0. Salaam 2.0 is our ministry to equip our members of the Christian Reformed Church to reach out to Muslims. Because increasingly, and you probably noticed this here in Kitchener, we have Muslims living around us. 
Um, and not only are we now focusing just on our Muslim neighbors, but actually people of different faith traditions in general, because we're becoming a pluralistic society that's very diverse and complex. So how do we, do, how do we adapt in a changing world as Christians? How do we witness appropriately? How do we build peace? So those are really some of the main points of Salaam 2.0. One is dialogue with our neighbors of other faith traditions. Another one is witness. How do we witness respectfully in this new century? Uh, another one is peacekeeping. How do we create peace, particularly with Muslims today, with all the challenges that that brings? And then finally, hospitality. How do we encourage hospitality to all these different groups? So given that the Holy Spirit is our focus this morning, I want to focus on that last one, and that's hospitality. And how the Spirit leads us into hospitality with our neighbors from other faith traditions who come to Canada from other lands and other places and who need our hospitality. Well, let me start with a story. So recently, my our youngest daughter was married in the Crow's Nest Pass in Alberta. So after the wedding, my wife and I had about a day to de-stress. De you know how stressful weddings can be. It was a beautiful wedding. It was a beautiful day. But we thought, let's just drive in the mountains and let's de-stress. So we headed west. If you're familiar with that part of the country, we were headed towards Cranbrook. And then we turned uh, north on, I think it's Highway 93, towards Radium Hot Springs. We thought, we've never been there before. We'll go and soak in the hot springs. So we did that. Then afterwards, we continued on towards Banff, and we reached this beautiful scenic point where we could see out over the Kootenai River, and it was just gorgeous. And my wife and I were admiring the beauty of God's creation, thankful for all the good things that we'd experienced in the last week. And suddenly, a little girl came over to us and said, would you like some watermelon? Well, actually, we were kind of thirsty because we had just left the hot springs. We had not drank any water. So, you know, my initial reaction, of course, is to say, no, thank you, I'm fine. But for some reason, I said, okay. So my wife and I went over, and they gave us some watermelon. This was a couple living in Calgary who had immigrated from Pakistan. And as we were talking, we were just chatting a little bit with this couple, a man and a wife and two kids, eating watermelon. It was a wonderful moment. Well, I happened to say to them, thank you for the watermelon, because actually we don't have any water and we're quite thirsty. Immediately, she goes in the back of her SUV and pulls out a cooler and gives us a cold water bottle. So not only did we have watermelon, we had also cold water. And we talked a little bit more, and then as we finished the watermelon, I had this urge. I just really wanted to chuck those rinds into the forest. And so I just did it. I just chucked it as far as I could. And then the little boy from the family, he chucked it. And then the little girl, she chucked her rind. And then we noticed, though, there were some people over there who were staring at us <laughs> sourly. I mean, it is a national park. I guess you're not supposed to do that. But it was fun. Anyways, I felt a little bad because then the mother got a little nervous and sort of said, no, don't do that anymore. Um, anyways, we went on our way. But what a wonderful experience. All because I was willing to take hospitality from a stranger. That's really what hospitality is all about, isn't it? It's hosting and it's being a guest. It's both. It's really the two together. Being willing to go into that uncomfortable place sometimes with people that we don't know, with strangers. 
So let me talk about three things this morning in terms of hospitality. I want to begin with the very root of hospitality. As Christians, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And hospitality comes from that idea of Trinity itself. So we're going to talk first about Trinitarian hospitality. Because as Christians, that's where it comes from. Well, right away, when I had this experience with this family, it was like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. I don't really need to accept your watermelon. I think I'll refuse. Why? Where does that come from, right? Some kind of thing that's ingrained in us that we need to be independent, that we shouldn't rely on other people, right? Well, where does that come from? I'm so glad I resisted that and took the watermelon. But really, that's what God leads us into, doesn't he? That's what it means to have the Spirit poured out on us at Pentecost. God is, a, is an amazingly generous God who pours out his Spirit in all these different languages so amazing that the people there are amazed. And they even think they've drunk too much wine. They'd never seen anything like this before. So they had to find some kind of category to put it into. They must be drunk. And if you've ever learned another language, you know how hard it is to learn language, right? I learned an African language. It took me about 10 years, and I was still not that good at it. My wife was much better, but I wasn't that great after 10 years. But here immediately, these simple Galileans were speaking in all these different languages, just like that. Amazing. These were simple folk. These were fishermen. And they were just speaking these languages. What an abundant and generous God we have. Pour out his Holy Spirit in this way. See, at Pentecost, Babel is reversed. We had a young theologian this morning. I heard him mention Babel. <laughs> Pentecost is the reversal of Babel, right? It's an amazing thing. And the theologian Miroslav Volf says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, that Babel led from one language to many languages and a scattering, right? That's, that's what Babel led to. But the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the reverse. It helps us to understand each other, not with one language, God doesn't all bring us into one language that we all speak together. No, he helps us to understand all the languages, to celebrate the diversity of languages, and to see that as a good thing. Wolf points out that the Spirit overcomes the confusion of Babel not by a return to cultural uniformity, but through delighting in cultural diversity. So it's not like we all have to become one. Actually, God delights in that diversity that we see at Pentecost. And not only that, but think about some of these languages that are mentioned here, that are heard here. I'm sure, uh, probably uh, Cretans, for one, maybe Arabs in that context, I don't know. I'm sure not all these languages were esteemed languages. Right? I think Paul makes a point somewhere else that Cretans weren't particularly looked up to. And yet God pours out the Spirit and these languages are heard. So again, to come back to Volf, what Volf says is that all the languages have a place, all are understood, and in fact, even the voiceless are now heard. And the people on the margins are brought into the middle. It's an amazing thing. Pentecost. Because God is a God of abundant love and grace, and he pours out his Spirit abundantly. He's generous. He's a generous God. And the beauty of that is it starts right in the Trinity itself, right? 
That's the way the Trinity interacts with each other. The, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are together, and they are involved in their work independently and yet together. There's a the theological concept called perichoresis. The members of the Trinity are independent, and yet they also need each other. When one works, the others are involved always. They are never separate. And so they are both, in a sense, host and guest of each other. Hospitality comes from the very nature of our triune God. And then the Holy Spirit pours out and leads us into that kind of hospitality. That self-giving movement of the Spirit. And in a world today that's increasingly pluralistic and diverse with many languages and many faiths and many beliefs, we need the Spirit to lead us into that kind of hospitality. Amos Young, in his book on hospitality, looking at it from a Pentecostal perspective, says that the Holy Spirit is increasingly working in the church today to open us up to the other, to the stranger. And in fact, if you look at the way the World Council of Churches has changed in the, over the last uh, number of years since 1963, originally it was the witness of Christian men to other faiths, that's 1963 theme of the World Council of Churches. In 1977, it had changed to dialoguing in community. And so more and more, the church began to realize that dialogue is critical in a pluralistic world. Now, Young also mentions that there are some who seek to polarize this conversation and say, this is right or this is right. But what he says, and I think we can all agree, is that actually today, authentic evangelism has to involve some element of dialogue. If we're going to share our faith in Jesus Christ, we have to also be willing to listen to the other and understand their experience as well. The Holy Spirit helps us with that. It helps us to make safe spaces for other people to engage with us. And it resists having an agenda, but to allow the agenda to result from the relationship with the neighbor. But I have to tell you, sometimes it is risky following the Holy Spirit. It's not always easy. So that's our second point this morning, that following the Holy Spirit and hospitality is an adventure. It is an adventure. Just like that was an adventure of eating the watermelon on that scenic overlook. And hospitality has always been seen as an adventure. If you go back and you look at Greek and Roman culture, they, have, they believed in the concept of theoxenia, theoxenia, or God encountering God in the stranger. The Greeks and the Romans believed that you could perhaps encounter a god if you welcomed a stranger. In Roman culture, Cicero and Ovid mention hospitality as a divine responsibility. And of course, in our own Christian tradition and going back into Hebrew culture, there was always the possibility of welcoming an angel. Look at the three visitors who came to Abraham's tent and the kind of hospitality that Abraham extended to them. But there is always a risk. No matter who your guest is, you have to step out of your comfort zone to welcome them. Or, alternatively, to go and be a guest, you have to step out of your comfort zone, don't you? I was recently at a meeting of some 
colleagues who work at reaching out to Muslims in Canada, the Canadian Network of Ministries to Muslims that we work with as partners. And I was moved by the testimony of a Chinese Alliance pastor in Scarborough. They discovered that in this uh, suburb in Scarborough that many of their neighbors were South Asians. So they decided they wanted to reach out to the local South Asian population. Mixed in there is a number of other people groups and people from different places. One family was from Afghanistan and this pastor was chosen to be the host of this family from Afghanistan. Well, the family from Afghanistan welcomed this Chinese pastor over and uh, he shared with us that before he went, he actually was quite afraid to go because he had heard stories, right, about the Afghan conflict, the war in Afghanistan. And um, before he went, he said he prayed. He was afraid. He prayed, Lord, I'm going there for supper. My life is in your hands. If I die, I die. That was his heartfelt prayer. And he meant it. Of course, he shared that when he actually did go to this Afghan family, he walked in the door and their whole floor, there was a huge blanket on the floor and it was filled with food. All sorts of beautiful Afghan food. The only danger that he was in was danger of overeating. But isn't that how it goes, right? It's not always easy to step out, to take a risk, to put yourself in that uncomfortable position. And yet the Holy Spirit, that's why God sent the Holy Spirit to help us enter into those risky places, knowing that the power of the Holy Spirit is with us as we enter into those relationships. To help us not have that reaction when we're offered hospitality by strangers, no thank you, it's okay, I'm good, but to actually step out and accept hospitality or to give hospitality. I'm always blessed. One of the things that I have been able to do, not so much lately, but one of the things that I've been able to do with this ministry is lead people on mosque visits. Uh, we've done a number of them. We did one actually in Waterloo about two years ago, I think now, and that was very good. And it gives a people a chance just to experience what is it like in a mosque? What are Muslims like? What is their worship like? And they're always very hospitable. In fact, one time I was in the mosque, and uh, when you go in a mosque, generally you take your shoes off, right? That's part of their practice. You put your shoes in these little cubby holes at the door, you go into the mosque. So I did that. I went into the mosque. I had no shoes on. And then I realized I had to go and use the washroom. I thought, well, I'm not really, it's kind of wet sometimes in there, and I don't really want to go in there with my socks on. So I was standing there wondering what to do, and then a man came, and he came running up to me, and he gave me slippers. So I put the slippers on, and I went to the washroom. That's the kind of hospitality you experience in a mosque. But we also, in our Christian tradition, believe in practicing hospitality, don't we? It's an important value. It's the very heart of God. And in fact, Augustine, the church father, said, Acknowledge the duty of hospitality, for by this some have attained unto God. It's a very, very central part of being a Christian and following Jesus, is to extend hospitality to the stranger. So that's the third point that I want to talk about this morning, and that is welcoming the stranger. Because it's a bit, and I want to lament this morning, that welcoming the stranger has become very politicized. 
and that there are many people who are afraid of welcoming the stranger into our country, into our communities, into our neighborhoods. And yet it's the very heart of what we believe, isn't it? To welcome the marginalized, those fleeing civil war, those hurting, those in pain, to welcome them in. I mean, in Luke 14, Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet. The first invites have refused. So the master tells the servant to go out into the streets and who does he invite? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Of course, Jesus is firstly speaking about his Jewish compatriots and their refusal to hear his message. But this also tells us something about the kingdom of God, doesn't it? That Jesus welcomes in the poor, the blind, the lame, the marginalized. And then in Romans chapter 12, as Paul is talking about the love of Jesus, he talks about hospitality. He says uh, that we are to pursue hospitality. The word there is a little stronger than in the NIV, which uses the word practice. The Greek word means to pursue. And in fact, he's kind of setting up, I think, between verse 13 and 14, an interesting little play there, because after that he said, blessed are you who are persecuted. And he uses the same word for persecuted and pursue. I guess that's because if you pursue someone relentlessly, you're in a sense persecuting them. Why does he use the same word to pursue hospitality and to persecute? I think because he wants to stress the point that you should pursue hospitality not only with your friends, not that that's not important and part of early church practice, but that you have to even pursue hospitality with strangers and maybe even those that you're not sure about. I think that's why he uses that same word in Romans chapter 12. So what Paul is saying there is that we have to pursue hospitality even in uncomfortable situations and that we are to go outside our comfort zone to pursue hospitality. Now many churches are doing that, and I think we can celebrate that, that many churches in our tradition are welcoming refugees. And that is a wonderful thing. And I think another way that we can extend hospitality is to enter into interreligious dialogue. That's a newer thing. Whenever I experience other religious traditions, I am always amazed at the diversity in this world. And I look for the ways that God is working and the Holy Spirit is showing up in those other religious traditions. Really thinking about Kuiper's concept of common grace. But it's not always easy. For example, Two years ago, we went to the Hindu temple in Hamilton. And as I went into the Hindu temple and I saw the idols and the food that was set out because they believe that the idols are living beings. And in fact, there was a fire a number of years ago in Hamilton, the idols were burnt. They had to sink them in Lake Ontario. I did begin to feel a sense of evil, but I wanna be careful when I say these kinds of things because I don't wanna build up fear but I did sense some evil. You know, our, our, we were talking earlier in the service, we were hearing the words that there should be no idols, right? We should, we're not worship idols. And so I was really struck by that. I just had a very uncomfortable feeling. So I was processing this and I was wondering, why did I feel so uncomfortable? What was it? 
And then I realized that we had only had a tour of the temple. We had really not met any Hindus. The only person we met was the president of the board of the temple and the priest who had just come from India who spoke no English. And I realized what was missing. What was missing were the people. Because it's in the people that we see the image of God, where we can really make that connection. That's why I had that uncomfortable feeling, because I didn't meet any people. Now, I'll contrast that to a visit that we went, that we made uh, that, the next year to a Sikh temple. Sikh temples are different in that there are no idols, but they do worship their holy book that they see as the living present guru. And in fact, every night they actually have a bed in the temple and they take the book and they put the book to bed. And so we were able to participate in and experience some of that uh, worship. But this one was so different because there were people. And in fact, uh, we had gone to the temple and we had um, expected to be fed because one thing about a Sikh temple is that they always have food. It's called a langar. It's because out of, it came out of Hinduism, and it was to show that there are no castes. There are no differences we can all eat together. So generally, if you go to a Sikh temple, you're fed. So we were expecting, I had brought a group of people. We were expecting to be fed. Uh, we were kind of counting on it, actually. Um, and we got there. There was uh, a mix-up, and they didn't know we were coming, and they had no food. Now, this is a small temple, because every temple should have food. This was a small temple. It had no food. And so uh, there was a lot of talking, and I, and I could not understand what they were saying. Thankfully, we had uh, a friend with us who was teaching us about Sikhism, who could speak Urdu. I think it was Urdu. And uh, he sort of got everything straightened out. So we went and did a little bit of a tour of the temple. And then after a while, they actually brought some takeout Indian food for us. And then while they were doing that, uh, a whole bunch of women came into the temple and started cooking dal and rice and everything, and they made us a huge supper still. So we didn't eat until around 7, but we did eat. And we had a wonderful chance to talk to those people in the temple, our Sikh neighbors. Again, I really think it's because we connected with people who, in whom we could see the image of God that we had a good experience. So I think as we continue uh, in this kind of diverse and changing society, this is going to be really important for the future as Christians, to get to know our religious neighbor, but to also be an authentic witness of what we believe and to hold that intention. It's not easy, but I think Abraham Kuyper leads us in this because Abraham Kuyper was somebody who believed in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There was only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. And yet he was respectful of other faith traditions, and he looked for ways that we could learn from them as well. So he's a good role model in our Reformed tradition. And as we enter into dialogue, we work at building bonds of peace, building community, and I think we present a healthier, um, a, a healthier sense of the gospel when we do this because we are being servant-hearted and hospitable in our approach. My wife was in the airport one time and she was sitting waiting for a plane and there was somebody who was um, uh, evangelizing somebody beside her. 
And she said she began to feel uncomfortable because this person wouldn't take no for an answer. That this person was kind of hammering away, hammering away on this poor person. It's not the best way. It's not the best method. I know sometimes it's been done. But the best way is to enter into a relationship, to get to know the person, to love them, to show the love of God, but to also witness authentically to what we believe. And in fact, one of the things that I've learned as I've talked to uh, my Muslim friends and uh, also talked to Muslims who have come into Christianity is that oftentimes it's not the person that they initially interact with that leads them to Christ. It's not the, that's not the person that they're impressed with. It's the Christian community around them. That's the witness. People of God, as you love each other in this community, you are a tremendous witness to those outside the walls of the church. And as you interact with them in that love, they feel it. Muslims know that Christians are people of love. They know that. And something that Muslims don't have that we have is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts people, right? And we have that. We have that. Uh, recently, a study was done at Tyndale Seminary, and they looked at some different factors that led Muslims to start following Jesus. The first factor, and this is something that we're working at in the Canadian network, to bring these factors into our churches and our society. Number one was a Christian friend. If Muslims have a Christian friend, the possibility of them following Jesus goes up. Number two, a welcoming church. If Muslims know there's a welcoming church in their neighborhood, the possibility for them following Jesus goes up. And then finally, a Bible. If somebody gives a Muslim a Bible and they're willing to accept it, again, it goes up. Those are the three main things that they discovered in this Tyndale Seminary study. And then there was four other things, and I can't remember them all. One was patience, time. You can't rush ministry to Muslims. It takes a long time. It's about relationships. But the last one was a supra-rational event. So what's a supra-rational event? A supernatural event. A dream or a vision of Jesus. That can often make all the difference. And so that's our prayer, right? As we pray for our Muslim neighbors, that they would have that kind of experience through the Holy Spirit. So as we reach out in love, as we show kindness and hospitality, the other thing I want to mention, and then I'm going to wrap up, is that it's really important that we do witness as to why. Because so many religious traditions are based on what you do. And it can become very easy for a Muslim to think that the reason that you are doing an act of kindness for them, that you are being hospitable, that you are doing these things for them, is that you are trying to earn favor with God. It did occur to me that it's very possible that our friends who gave us a watermelon were actually gaining merit in their eyes by giving us watermelon okay, I still enjoyed the watermelon. But it's important to know why, right? 
Because here's the danger is that they can start to think, oh, you Christians, you are gaining merit with your God. And yet, doesn't that undermine our very basic beliefs? Doesn't that undermine what we believe as Reformed Christians, that we are saved by grace alone? That we can do nothing to earn our salvation, but that Jesus Christ has fully paid for all our sins by his death on the cross? And his resurrection is a sign of that victory? See, unless we speak that, unless we share that with Muslims and other people, they'll think we're trying to gain merit. Buddhists will think the same thing. So we have to make sure that our witness is clear and not fudge that it is Jesus Christ who has done everything for us. Jesus Christ is the key. So Pentecost reminds us of all this, doesn't it? In Pentecost, we have this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us into hospitality. And whether that's welcoming in our neighbors of other faith traditions, or whether it's going out into their communities and places of worship, however God leads you, you have the Holy Spirit leading you, the power of the Holy Spirit leading you into these inter-religious engagements. So we live in interesting times, but we have a God who is up to it, and he has equipped us with the Holy Spirit. And so as you go on your way, please, please keep in mind these neighbors of yours here in Kitchener. Think about them, pray for them. One of the things that we're beginning to encourage, it's kind of a new idea, but we're starting to ask churches to find out where your local mosque is and to pray for them. I know that's radical. Find out the name of the local imam. Imam is the pastor of the mosque. Find out the name of the local imam. Pray for him. Of course, we want to pray that they would eventually come to know Jesus. But it starts with prayer, doesn't it? Just praying for their well-being. I want to challenge you with that this morning to think about that as a church. How can we pray for our neighbors? I noticed as I was driving in also at uh, Latter-day Saints Steakhouse. You could do the same thing there as well. Pray for them. Think about them. So I want to conclude this morning by just going back over again that our hospitality arises out of the very Trinitarian nature of God. It's at the very core of our faith. It's an adventure. Sometimes we might have fear, but God is stronger than those fears, and the Holy Spirit is more powerful. And that spirit-led hospitality means making room for the stranger, welcoming the stranger, sometimes going to the stranger, so that they may know Jesus Christ. So we give praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning, and pray that God will go with you in that adventure. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks for a changing society, even though sometimes we're not always sure where it's leading. But we do know that we have new opportunities for mission, for outreach, and for dialogue, and for hospitality. So lead and guide us, we pray, by your spirit, and open up doors of hospitality in this community so that the name of Jesus would be lifted up. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.